the number one selling product of its kind with over 20 years of research and innovation. Botox Cosmetic, Autobotulinum Toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com. Hello and welcome to Any Stupid Questions, the podcast where three comedians ask experts in important things, stuff you ought to know but don't. Basically, we'll look ignorant so you don't have to. I'm Danielle Ward and joining us to explain farming this week is Philip Clark, the executive editor of Farmers Weekly. Hello, Philip. Hello, Danielle. Also joining me are comedy writer Jack Bernhardt and comedy writer slash producer Clarissa Maycock. Hello. Hello. Now, as we've realised, no one listens to the end of podcasts, so if you want to plug anything, you're going to have to do it right now. Jack. Uh, I'm on Twitter. And so, look at Twitter. It's a good website. What is your Twitter handle? Uh, That's probably helpful. <laughs> is it got lots of numbers after it? It's got two numbers after it, so it'll be confusing. So it's at JackBurn23. Larissa, have you got anything you'd like to plug? Oh, I've also got a Twitter account. I'd love some followers. <laughs> What's your Twitter account? <laughs> it's at ClarissaDM. And Philip, have you got a Twitter account? I do, but it's a fairly passive one, oh. uh, but at Farmers Weekly. Right. So here's my first question to you, Philip. Will leaving the EU be good for farmers? Because they all seem to be very up for it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's a pretty big question to kick off with. But uh, let's give it a go. I think the first thing I'd say was that we were pretty surprised that farmers were up for it. Probably four months before the referendum itself, we did our first snap poll on, on our website, fully expecting farmers to be probably more remain rather than leave. Mm -hmm. And uh, it turned out about 60% leave, 40% remain. We did another four or five pieces of research over the next year and after the referendum as well. And the result was consistent. As for whether that's a good thing or not. Is it going to be good for them? Uh, Well, we're still mystified. (laughs) (laughs) None of us know. I mean, every every bit of research that um, we'd seen in the run-up and subsequently tends to paint a, a more negative economic picture. But there again, there was other reasons people voted. They weren't just voting based Mm. on their own economic expectations. Uh, They were voting for reasons of sovereignty or reasons of migration or whatever happened to float their boat. And so what what is the situation with farmers and EU subsidies? Because we hear about this all the time. I mean, I I was under the impression, I'm surprised that it was that number, because if you listen to Nigel Farage on LBC, he acts like 90% of farmers wanted to leave and it's going to be great for them. (laughs) And don't even get him started on the fishermen. So what is the situation with the EU subsidies? How does this work? Uh, Well, first of all, I don't listen to Nigel Farage on uh, LBC, but... Uh, what? Come on, guys! <laughs> Plays all the best hits. Indeed. But in terms of the subsidy issue, then clearly you know, a lot of farmers' income is, is derived from the subsidy. In sort of broad terms, on average, about 60% of farm profit is the subsidy. And there's no guarantee that that'll continue. 
there's a guarantee that it will continue until the end of the current government. Yeah. That might be till next week or (laughs) 2022, who knows, who knows. But after that, there's no financial commitment. And so, yeah, there's a strong likelihood that uh, the subsidy will be reduced. Uh, Without the subsidy, the majority of farmers would be making a loss at the moment. It's, you know, their profitability is very dependent on the money that they get from Brussels and from the taxpayer. Who, why... Sorry. <laughs> two, two question Who words. <laughs> Who and why? Why does the EU subsidise farmers? That seems like a that, that's a very, very dumb question and it is a dumb question and that's the point of the show. But why do they do it? Well, it, um, there's a historic element to it, obviously. So going back to the formation of the common market after the Second World War, there was a national food shortage. Mm-hmm. And so to boost food production, system subsidies was introduced in Europe. We had a different system in the UK, when we joined the EU in or the European Economic Community in the early 70s, we merged into their system. But pretty much every country, every developed country in the world has a some kind of support system for agriculture. And without it, then your producers are going to be at a significant disadvantage. So there's an element of history and there's an element of, uh, of doing the same as everybody else. Am I right in thinking there's an element of preparing for disaster? In that historically, that in case there was like World War Three well, um, tomorrow, we'd still have plenty of food, or is I that? I think if there's World War Three tomorrow, we're not going to worry too much <laughs> about what's going into our stomachs. But uh, historically, that is you know, the case. Um, recently, uh, in last November, with the armistice, we were looking back at sort of some of the uh, history behind it. And on the eve of the First World War, we were something like 60% self-sufficient in food. Mm. Coincidentally, we're about 60% self-sufficient in food now. But then come uh, 1917, three years into the war, there was a real danger that the country was going to starve. And with the German U-boats hitting food supplies into that was coming from our colonies then, the government decided that it had to do something. And so it changed the policy fairly late into the First World War to start giving production incentives to enable the country to feed itself and that argument you know can still still be applied today in what is a very uncertain world so if let's say we've left the eu and so we the farmers don't get that subsidy and then there's a change of government whichever way it swings and they say we can't afford to subsidize farming anymore what happens it'll depend on on many things it'll particularly depend on our trading arrangement it will depend on what other countries are doing as well the whole thrust of the policy debate at the moment is that yes there should still be money available for UK farmers but what they have to do to qualify will change and so there's a big emphasis on environmental delivery animal welfare public access what uh, Michael Gove calls public money for public goods and to a certain extent that's not a bad thing Mm. I think um, you know that's the way it's been heading it's the way the UK has been pushing for for change in Brussels over 30 years it now has more free reign to do so But if farmers are able to get a better return from the marketplace, and that's a big issue in itself, then delivering public goods makes sense if that's what we have to do to get hold of taxpayer money. So a pint of milk costs 45p. If I was Alan Sugar selling that pint of milk at a profit (laughs) because I've made it as a farmer, how much would I have to sell it for? I don't think the supermarkets are making profit on milk. I mean, historically, it's been a bit of a lost leader anyway. But whatever losses the supermarket's making on, on milk... It's also putting pressure on the supply chain and the bottom of the supply chain is, is the farmer. At the moment, they're making a 
decent enough income from dairying because the world market has been stronger and things like price of butter, price of cheese on the global market also affects what the dairy farmer makes. But there's been plenty of times in the not-so-distant past when dairy farmers have been losing money hand over fist and many have gone out of out of business. I remember when I first started at Farmers Weekly <clears throat> 25 years ago, <laughs> um, there was something like 36,000 dairy farmers in England and Wales were now down to less than 10,000. Really? So that's the rate at which people are going out. Latest figures we saw showed that in January, just last month, there was about 100 farmers, dairy farmers went out of the sector uh, because of, of pressure. What do they go into? Many retire, some go into beef production. They're, uh, kind of, they're used to working with livestock and that might provide an alternative. They might be able to diversify into some other activity, non-farming activity. But uh, they, you know, get out of the dairy sector. Office bonding, but with cows. <laughs> so you go to the farm and there's office activities with cats. That, that like, is just a pitch. Like call centres. Yeah. yeah, like that's yeah, mil- sure. milking cows together. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you, you mentioned the environment briefly earlier. Um, we hear so much in the news about how farming beef and lamb is actually quite bad for the environment. Are we mainly beef and lamb farming in, in Britain and are we changing, are we shifting because of environmental pressures to um, uh, Very roughly half the country would be on arable production, crop production, half mm. would be pasture land yeah. and the vast majority of dairy production, beef production would be on pasture land. There may be some farms where the animals are indoors being, being fed a cereal diet but that's much more the American kind of, of system. Where there is production on grassland, then actually there's big environmental benefits from that. The grass and hedges and woods and trees are are a natural carbon sink. So in terms of taking carbon out of the atmosphere, they actually have a a positive role. It's quite often reported about the amount of methane that uh, Mm. the cows produce through farting, basically. Yes, that's more of a problem. But from my understanding, whereas carbon, once it's put into the atmosphere, is there forever, methane does dissipate. So if you reduce cow numbers, which we have actually done over the last sort of 20, 30 years, then you're reducing the level of methane uh, in the atmosphere and it does dissipate. I don't suppose, do the government subsidies reflect environmental impact at all? Not, to, not really. Yeah, to a certain extent. And I think that's one area where the common agricultural policies had a lot of unfair criticism that to qualify for your subsidy at a, as a very basic level, you have to farm to what's known as good agricultural environmental condition. Mm. But 30% of that subsidy is also tied into something called greening, where you have to meet a higher level of standards in terms of environmental protection to qualify for that. If you didn't want the subsidy, could you, for example, buy a barn and fill it with a million chickens and just do it, and just get loads and loads of eggs and they're all hor- and all the chickens are all twisted and weird? Are you allowed to do that? <laughs> that's, a, that's a loaded question. <laughs> well, I guess what I'm saying but, is, well, oh, is there a basic standard that farmers or farming need to adhere to, even if they're not looking for subsidies, or can literally anybody do anything to any animal if it turns profit? There are some farmers that choose not to take subsidies because of the hurdles you have to go through, Mm -hmm. the bureaucracy, the red tape, and if they're in a position where they don't actually need it, say they've got very low levels of debt, they've got family labour, for whatever reason, they may decide not to 
claim the subsidy in the first place. That's fairly unusual, but some go down that route. There are other sectors which aren't actually subsidised at all anyway, and you, you mentioned poultry production. Yeah. And, in fact, that's one of the fastest-growing sectors. It's one of the most profitable sectors, and it's unsubsidised. Oh, which, that sounds dodgy. Oh, oh, no. Oh, no. Oh. There's reasons for that. Is it because of a 99p Morrison's chicken? Is it because, <laughs> is it because of welfare standards? It's because um, the sector has had to be very innovative because it hasn't had a, a subsidy bed to lie in. It's also highly integrated, so the farmers are on direct contracts to the processors who are on direct contracts to the supermarkets. Everybody knows what kind of margin they're getting. Mm -hmm. Uh, So there's a much more reliable share out of the overall cake. And it's a highly efficient, uh, poultry is highly efficient at converting grain into meat. It has a low environmental footprint because it's contained within sheds and so actually, you know, poultry is is an area that a lot of people are going into. Because one of my questions was going to be, um, why haven't we banned battery farms for chickens? But mm. I guess it's a profit thing, is it? Uh, well, the simple answer is that we have banned battery chickens. Have we? Oh. But it's not quite as straightforward as that. So the what is called the barren battery cage, which is literally a wire cage with five chickens in for laying eggs. Yeah. And be aware that egg-laying chickens are a completely different beast to a meat chicken, two separate industries. Oh, but it's the same sort of chicken. Completely different type of chicken. They have two legs and two wings and a beak. Yeah. Uh, but beyond that, and to get back to what I was saying on the, uh, the battery cage issue, that those barren battery cages were banned unilaterally by the UK in 2012, or well, I think that was ahead of EU rule changes but it was replaced by what's called an enriched cage Mm -hmm. which is a bigger cage but with more chickens but in the enriched cage they have perches pecking areas and more space per bird so it's still an intensive cage system it's being phased out mainly at the insistence of, of retailers but it's still there is still that kind of egg production. But it's a slightly better cage. They're not just rebranded yeah. the no, same no. sort of really horrible cage. <laughs> it's not like a bijou nice. cage. <laughs> yeah. You look around and, oh, hang on, the bed's in the toilet. <laughs> well, I guess for a chicken that probably is but, the case. Yeah. That's exactly how it is. The way you make it sound is if the UK has been quite progressive with farming mm-hmm. uh, outside of EU law. It seems like we are ahead of what the EU's been doing. So are you... There's all this talk about... Um, farming and agriculture being rolled backwards in terms of standards, do you not think that's going to happen? It's certainly the case that the UK has set the pace in a, num- in a number of areas. Again, going back to the poultry one, the EU has a certain standard of stocking density of, of meat chickens. That's the different one to the egg chicken. <laughs> Our UK basic standard is at a lower stocking rate than that. The red tractor standard is a little bit lower than that. And then you've got RSPCA, Freedom Foods, standards which are lower than that so there's a whole range of different standards but generally in that sector all of the standards are are above the the basic eu standard similarly in in pig production we we banned what are called sow stalls where the pregnant sows were kept in in basically confined space throughout most of their gestation and we banned that years ago with the fairly catastrophic effect on on pig production because we could still import and yeah. basically mm. our domestic production oh. took a hit and we ended up importing more. That's always the problem with setting the standard because you can you still are obliged in the single market or even mm. under WTO rules to import from 
people that have legal but lower standards. That's amazing because that's great to hear. That's not necessarily the image I yeah. had of of British farming, which is silly, really, because you think maybe we should get that message. Well, out indeed, there. the industry needs to do a much better job because, yes, of course, there are instances where somebody lets the side down and you, you know, get cases of animal abuse in pig farms or in abattoirs or whatever. They're a real minority of cases, but they're the things that you get to hear about and the things that the animal welfare lobby will latch on to and, and push. So, yeah, you don't necessarily get to hear the good things about the sector and the industry does need to do a better job. Did any of this come from the 80s BSE scandal? Um, did you it, don't have to answer it. <laughs> <laughs> I did it, the drive for, the yeah, drive the drive for, in, yeah, improved for standards. standards. Uh, yeah, I mean, that was certainly a, a major, major impact. More the, the consequence of that was the standards of what goes on in the meat sector in terms of meat processing and what bits of the animal you could use for what. And there are still, what, 22 years later on, those rule changes are still, still apply today. So yeah, things that you can't do that you could have done in the early 90s. I mean, yeah, like that whole effect that it had on the industry, I mean, like, did it change how people perceived British farming at that time? Because I can't imagine... It had a positive impact. Or... I mean, at, at that time, instantly there were export bans imposed by pretty much the whole world. So we ended up unable to sell our beef abroad, which was an export product for, for a number of years. Interestingly, actually, the first group that banned it, although pretty much everyone did fairly quickly, was the EU. But then the first block that lifted the bans was the EU as well, mm. because we were part of the, the organisation. We were instrumental in determining what the rules would be and uh, got to a situation where you know, we were able to start exporting again I think a couple of years later apart from the French and the French carried on banning for a number of years. And Japan have only that. just lifted the ban haven't yeah. they? Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, like yeah, really yeah, recently. That's right, yeah. If you're enjoying Any Stupid Questions, because this is in the middle, why not rate and review? Wait till it's finished. Don't just stop halfway, because that also affects our advertising, I think. But when you get to the end of the podcast, rate and review it. Thank you very much. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. If I wanted to be a farmer, what produce would turn the highest profit? Because I assume it's something really fancy like Romanesco broccoli. What, because what's it Romanesco just, broccoli? It's the, the broccoli that looks like fractals, the, 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 yeah, the pointy broccoli. So it's broccoli, so it must be easy to grow. And yet you can sell it for like three quid a thing, a thing of broccoli. I don't know what it's called, <laughs> a thing of broccoli. It's probably one of those things that requires loads of water or like a special, you know, I mean, they do look amazing. From... They look like maths yeah. as a vegetable. <laughs> so, so if I was going to become a farmer, where's the money? Um chickens it is in chicken yeah. uh, just looking at the good old chickens yeah but is it in because when they say like chickens and they have a picture of a happy chicken on the front like is is that chicken actually happy you know the eggs with the, the happy chicken on the front um, it's called like happy eggs yeah happy egg chicken i don't believe those I, happy that's, eggs that's what I, that's how i feel about it yeah. like is it if you want to make a profit is it just you've got to get sad chickens and shove them all together 
Uh, no, that's not the case. The happy, the happy eggs, and I, I agree with you that I've never seen a chicken driving an ATV before. Yeah. But they seem to do it pretty well. And you would be against that? Uh, well, unless it was wearing a helmet. Okay. In those circumstances. Well trained chicken. How does it but, reach uh, the paddles? Uh, well, um, Why am I so massive? I'm <laughs> or a tiny. <laughs> so, high welfare chicken would be free range. Both free range meat chicken is can be profitable. Free range mm. egg is the norm. Over half egg production is now free range. That's the norm. Surely turkeys, like Christmas turkeys, cost a fortune. You pay about eighty quid for a turkey. Yeah, well, you're paying for high welfare. So That's huge as well. But chickens turn more of a profit than a turkey. Ooh. Um, <laughs> don't have those We've got to really get into the birds. I also realised I haven't seen, like, ducks. Are ducks on farms? That's you have duck farms? <laughs> yeah. Both yeah. meat duck and egg-laying ducks. So, yeah, they, just, they're just... different birds as well. But uh, And how about yeah. pigeons? Do they just shoot them out of the sky? <laughs> That's how I thought they'd yeah. do with ducks. I was like... Oh, just going to catch one in a yeah. net from, uh, from, from wetlands park. Free money. Grab your, grab your pigeons. If you get a pigeon in a restaurant or pub in the UK, watch out for the lead because it will have been shot. It's a wild oh, bird. Really? But in oh. France, they do produce them in cages, in sheds. It's and it's a delicacy, delicious. absolute delicacy. Oh, uh, so should we be selling all these pigeons on the streets outside in London to France <laughs> as a delicacy? Yeah, free range. Free range. No, yeah. a, again, it's a different product. So wild pigeon uh, is what uh. we would like, what I like. But the but street farm, pigeon. Farm street pigeon. <laughs> <laughs> and they will be only, able to only tell my, the difference. Only my so. student days. <laughs> so. But no, the, the, the pigeons in France are an absolute premium product. Really? And they're all reared indoors. Are there... Deer farms. There are deer farms as well. Oh gosh, okay. Because yeah. every yeah. time I see deer in like venison, I'm always like, that must have been bow and arrow. <laughs> <laughs> I assume everything is just caught in the wild, yeah. apart from like the chickens and Chicken the, a cow. Anything old MacDonald has on his farm, <laughs> I assume comes from a farm, but everything else is just caught in a woodland. Yeah, you're like, I'm sorry, we've got venison today because we happen to see a deer. It might be bear next week. No, they, okay. they, they, they do farm deer. They have very high fences. And, and are, are and deer they... farms the saddest farms? Because it's just like Bambi. Every time. <laughs> it's very sad, killing, killing a deer. I've never done it. No. So, I think, I think what it would be a <laughs> <laughs> I'm not answering that question. Not many. If you could have any, any animal farm, what would it be? Is there any animals that you really hate? Would you have a squirrel farm? Would I have a squirrel farm? They're quite cute, I suppose, and allegedly quite tasty. But uh, mm. I've never tried one. Mm. For me, it'd probably be ducks. I've got a fondness for ducks. So but, you uh, want to eat them? <laughs> <laughs> I don't have. I don't have a problem. I'm not a vegetarian, and I don't have a problem with either eating farmed animal because I'm confident in the standards that they're reared to. Yeah. I don't have a problem with eating a wild animal if I've shot it or killed it myself. It's part of the natural process for me. In your um, car, after the badger. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I am vegetarian, but this is because I worked in a zoo and I really, like, the the pigs were just so adorable. I was mm-hmm. like, I can't eat, I cannot eat pork anymore. Um, when I was pregnant, I did eat a bit of beef because, but, you know, I nearly bled to death, so it's fine. It really helped, actually. <laughs> but I, I'm with you, like, in the sense that, you know, we are animals eat animals. In the wild, animals eat animals. Mm-hmm. Uh, we eat animals, but it's the intensive farming that I 
that I have a problem with. Is intensive farming a problem in the UK? It's a problem for you. Because, well, it is a problem because for you, me, yes. It's uh, not what you want to, uh, to support through through what you choose to eat. I'm not going to eat a Richmond sausage from a newsagent. That's what I'm saying. Okay. <laughs> you heard it here first. <laughs> or a Scotch egg I find yeah. in a garage. I'm just not going to eat them. <laughs> delicious. I think it's, it's more a question of husbandry on a particular farm rather than the standard, it, the basic standard itself. So you can come across examples of free-range farms where actually the animals are, are compromised because there's a great disease challenge, for example, whereas an indoor unit, you've probably got more control, they've got a better climate, they've got bedding that they need. So I don't think it's as straightforward as saying, you know, it's intensive, bad, extensive, good. You know, a lot of animals would hate to be out, outdoors when the wind's blowing and you know, the fields have turned to mud. So, yeah, it, it's to do with standards on individual farms, which generally are way above standards that, um, on a lot of the stuff that we import. And of, as I said before, often you find that if we do raise our standards unilaterally, you still end up importing food at a lower cost. So you've got to find a, a compromise yeah. that works for the consumer, is acceptable for society and for government, but also doesn't completely scupper the industry by then exposing it to hormone treated beef or chlorine washed chicken to name a couple of things that are in the news rather a lot which again there's uh, you know there's answers and considerations to that we've been hearing a few stories about farming in america yeah about chlorine chickens and also about e coli and lettuces and Mm -hmm. because of runoff and there's it was sort of implied a while back i think in the news that after brexit when we're not necessarily subject to EU rules we could align more closely with American farming standards. Is that likely to happen or is that something that's not that likely to happen? It'll depend on the, first of all, on the trade deal that we get with the European Union. If we remain closely tied, then we'll also have to respect their standards. But if we're going to start pushing for our own free trade deals with the US and other players, then there's a real threat that we will you know have to allow imports which are currently not allowed under eu rules and you know there's you know two sides to it and the hormones that are used as growth promoters in american beef production and elsewhere in the world as well plenty of other countries technically they have a fairly clean bill of health they've been approved by global organizations they've been used for 30 years without ill effect it's just not what we do here and then on the chlorine wash chicken again that's the way the americans deal with pathogens in in that supply chain they have very different standards so for example in a, in a broiler unit here once the flock has gone through to slaughter the whole unit is then washed down cleansed to very high standard in america they just bring the next flock of birds in and they clean them like once a year and you may get six, you may get six or seven <laughs> flocks going through that shed so they have a much higher disease pressure but then their solution is to put the meat through a very dilute chlorine wash, mm. which kills all the pathogens. And in terms of human safety, it's not really an issue. I mean, the chlorine that's used is like less, cook- less than you'll find in the swimming pool when you go swimming. If you've got a mouthful of that, you don't die. I was going to say, mm. is it like just putting the birds through a swimming pool? Uh, One of the well, whirlpool bits. Yeah. <laughs> that's quite bits. nice. What, what's the farming industry's attitude towards vegans at the moment? Um there's a certain wariness. Mm-hmm. I think it's understood that they have a freedom of choice, they have a right to choose. Nobody's telling them, you can't be vegan, you have to eat our meat or drink our milk. 
So I think farmers accept that there's a freedom of choice issue there. The big problem is the very small minority of vegan extremists who have issued death threats. They email farmers. There was a story we did last week of one group that had got hold of all the contact details of every dairy farmer in the country in a thing called Project Calf, issued all the locations of every dairy farm and encouraged their members to go and visit and film and observe and challenge, which, uh, you know, is an invasion of privacy, but, you know, it gets more serious than that when you start getting death threats and Mm -hmm. telephone calls saying we know which school your child goes to. So that has has been going on, um, but the... So farmers are obviously very angry and and worried about it but I think the only solution some think well we'll just ignore it and it'll go away I don't think it will because it's getting a lot of traction and there are more and more people becoming vegan it's still two three percent of the population which you know compared to the noise that is generated is Mm. not that much Uh, but it's certainly a growing area of the consumer market particularly amongst younger consumers who are tomorrow's older consumers so you can counter the arguments. There's, you know, they use arguments about the environment, and we touched on that earlier. Mm-hmm. That uh, carbon sequestration is actually a positive from livestock production. On animal welfare, a lot of noise about ripping calves away from their mums and shooting the male calves at birth and things like that. That doesn't happen. As a general principle, the far- it's in the farmer's interest to maintain welfare of his animals, because a sick animal is less productive and costs money in vet bills. So, you know, the farmer is motivated to look after the welfare of, of his animals. And then in terms of nutrition, you know, milk, eggs, meat, they're highly nutritious, pack a punch, and, you know, consumers can eat them knowing that, you know, they're getting getting bang for the buck. Also, almond milk is very bad for the environment. Yeah, it's oh, awful. It? Yeah. It uses loads of water. Yeah. Oh, that's crazy. That's like the paper straws in pubs now. And apparently oh, they're just as bad for the environment. Oh, and they're not as good functioning as a straw. Yeah. What's the point of making any effort ever I know. to be a good person? Every time we try, it <laughs> backfires. Do you have uh, any more questions? I had a question about the... So this is very quickly back to the chlorine to chicken, not to press too much on it, but that's an issue of food standards in America. Mm-hmm. So it wouldn't... If there was a trade agreement with America that closely aligned with America, that wouldn't change how British farms work? That's the, the challenge and dilemma that we've asked government many times about that, and they guarantee that UK standards won't be lowered. But they don't guarantee that we won't import. They say they'll seek equivalence of standards in trade negotiations, but that's no guarantee that at the end of the day, particularly if we have a no-deal Brexit, the government we think will be looking for a, a quick win, which would be cheaper food. And the way of getting cheaper food is to allow American chicken or Brazilian beef in, ad lib, mm-hmm. and uh, undermine, undercut our own producers. I guess the hopeful thing is that consumers are moving towards purchasing better quality meat though aren't they i mean mm-hmm. there's a the market for free range and high quality free range eggs organic eggs organic chicken yeah. free range chicken is growing so people are making better choices yes uh, that that's true and the industry caters for all those choices and free range egg production has been you know the great success story that 30 years ago it was five percent and now it's 55 percent mm. and that's been driven by uh, by the retailers, the industry's responded. 
organic farming, which took a huge hit uh, following the financial crisis in 2008, is now back in the ascendancy. It's still minority, um, but that area is growing. And who knows, I mean, if uh, when we start looking to export, it's markets like China, Singapore, um, Japan, sort of the up-and-coming uh, economies in Southeast Asia that are looking for more of a Western diet. And hopefully they will be willing to pay more for what they perceive as well, what is a premium UK product. Like a Swede. Every time I get a Morrison's veg box, it's always got a Swede in it. Don't know what to do with them. <laughs> <laughs> what is the best waterproof jacket for a windy day? <laughs> <laughs> now we're coming to the real That's difficult question. This is what we were uh, here for. Couldn't possibly recommend a brand, but oh. uh, I know that barbers <laughs> are very popular. Basically, I don't think you can... If you're a farmer, you probably can't beat wax cotton. Green, preferably. Um, yeah, it'll protect you from the wind, from the rain, and from cow poo. And then everybody knows you're a farmer as well. Indeed. Yes. So. Why green? Is it camouflage? Okay. <laughs> so the cows can't see. Yeah, yeah. It's only at the last minute you can you jump just out. Just lie down. <laughs> Grab it. I don't know, but would you want a pink wax cotton jacket? Yeah, I, I would. Thought, mm. I thought you might. Um, we've got time for one more quick question each. Is there a big rivalry between different farmers? So, like, are the butter and dairy farmers fighting against the wheat farmers? Not fighting, but are they? Are they, is it, are they all in the same interests, or are they? Are they? Do they have different, like uh, I don't know, different motivations or different, you know, pressures? I wouldn't say there was particular fighting between sectors. I mean, typically livestock production, dairying, maybe on the west of the country, arable productions. Big generalisation, but more arable farming on the right uh, of the country in the eastern counties. You do see sort of um, some rivalries within sectors, particularly organic farmers or eco-farmers against conventional commercial farmers. And, yeah, you can see some rivalries there. And uh, they don't always give each other a very fair press. Does it, it, does it get like the blood and the crips? <laughs> uh, yes. <Yeah. laughs> drive-by yogurt throwing. Yeah. Yeah. Very slow tractors. Going you are in your blue scarf or your red scarf. <laughs> Inspired by hot fuzz, do all farmers have guns? <laughs> yes. Yes. No, they, they don't, but um, shooting is certainly a... A popular pastime for farmers. We did a survey recently looking at well-being. Uh, again, that, that's quite an issue at the moment, both mental and physical well-being. And as part of our survey, we were asking farmers what they do in terms of recreation. When did you last have a holiday? Mm-hmm. That sort of thing. And shooting is one of the activities that they, they do enjoy, both from a sort of vermin control point of view, mm-hmm. but also from a social point of view so a lot of farmers have guns all safely locked away in steel cabinets um so i have two very quick questions the first one is how many times has farmers weekly been on have i got news for you (laughs) Um, (laughs) never never but i can tell you that poultry world which was the magazine i edited hence some of my questions my answers have been based towards poultry but uh, (laughs) i edited poultry world for six years and that was the I think the seventh ever guest publication wow. in 1993. Wow. Which is quite yeah. scary that you think that that programme's been running that long. Yes. But Farmers Weekly never. We're far too mainstream. No. And uh, my final question is do you listen to the Beef and Dairy Network podcast? <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever given I'm, it a go? I Please am, say yes. <laughs> I'm familiar with the work. <laughs> and I would thoroughly recommend it to all our readers. Um, it's great. It's, it's really good, isn't I it? I thought maybe like farmers would be like, oh, and this sick <laughs> filth. No, I'm, I'm not speaking for farmers. I'm speaking in a personal capacity. <laughs> 
Well, that was brilliant. Thanks to Philip Clark, Jack Bernhardt and Clarissa Maycock. I've been Danielle Ward and the producer was Ed Morrish. <laughs> <laughs>